Hey! All right. So. <laughs> so if you're a visitor, welcome to Nashua Baptist Church. This is what we do. Now, listen. Um, so. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we definitely have the text up on the screens unless it fails sometimes between now and then, um, in just a second, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home, the reason for that is very, very simple, we believe that God uses his word to teach us about who he is and reveal himself to us, and so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, you're at a disadvantage to knowing God, and we can fix that by sending you home with a Bible today, so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, take that physical one home, and we'll call it a win, as long as you start reading it, so I'm trying to catch up, shut up, all right. <laughs> So, all the way back at Easter, all the way back at Easter, we kicked off a brand new series that we've been working on all year long called The Story of God, and the premise is very, 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 very simple. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus, full stop. No matter where you look, Jesus is the active agent and the star of the show. And we, uh, we shut things down, you know, a couple of times, took a little break, breaks here and there. Uh, we took the, the summer off to do some other stuff, and then we took a couple weeks off uh, for Christmas and New Year's uh, to handle some of that stuff. But mostly, this is what we've been working on for the better part of a year, that Jesus is the star of the Bible. And to prove that thesis, what we've done is we've taken a long, slow walk through the lives of the major characters of the Old Testament and pointed to their story and asked the deeper question, Okay, how does their story point us to God? How does their story point us to the much larger and much more beautiful story of Jesus? And, and so we even positioned ourselves in such a way so that, that the Sunday before Christmas we could talk about Jesus. We closed out the New Testament. We finished up the last New Testament character the week before the Christmas Sunday. And then we talked about Jesus the Sunday of Christmas. And so everything tied itself in a pretty little bow. So now what? What do we do? When, what do we do next? Because like the Old Testament isn't all of the Bible. It's like a major chunk of the Bible, but it's certainly not all of the Bible. So how do we? What do we do next? Well, those familiar with the Christmas narrative will already understand the significance of a God who dwells with us. We, we use the word Emmanuel, right? That that the eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us is a big deal. But we talked about. Uh, in our joint celebration with the Korean church, Hanmaum, that it's not an end to itself. That Jesus not only came on purpose, but he came with a purpose. He didn't just show up because he thought it would be fun. He showed up for a specific reason. So God has not left salvation of his people in the hands of anyone else. Instead, he came himself. And he is bringing this grand story to the most dramatic crescendo you could ever imagine. And so all throughout the, the, New, the Old Testament, we've been building this setup for this great story as the greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. You heard me say it over and over and over again this week. And listen, if you were paying attention, you caught that. I mean, there's, there's murder there's adultery, there's lot, big families, there's wars, there's, there's kingdoms falling, there's plagues, there's the almost sacrifice of Isaac right at the last second. Like it's impossible to read the Old Testament correctly and walk away going, ah, it's a slow read. It just is. And, and seriously, I, I come back to people with... With gentleness, as much as I can bear sometimes, as much as I can offer. Like, if somebody tells me that they're bored with the Old Testament, I usually go, hey, are you paying attention? 
because I can point to some stuff that I won't let my kids read. Right? The greatest action-adventure drama the world will ever know. But what about the New Testament? If the Old Testament's this great epic flick, what is the New Testament? Well, it turns out that the story of God is actually a chick flick. It's a chick flick. <laughs> wait, 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 what? How does every single chick flick end? With a wedding and a happily ever after, right? I mean, that's what they are, right? Whether it's Hallmark making them or Paramount, whoever, that's how every chick flick ends, with a wedding and a happily ever after. That's the game. That's, that's the, the, the formula that it's got to follow. So here's what I want to do. I want to spend the next four weeks looking at the New Testament through the lens of a first century Jewish wedding. And I know that is a lot to swallow. So let me say it a different way. I want to walk us through the process of a first century Jewish wedding. And in doing so, I really honestly believe that it will help us understand the New Testament better. Sound fun? Good, that's what we're doing. All right. I want to show you the big crescendo that, that God's epic story is moving towards. And we actually need to put on a certain pair of glasses in order to see it best. But before we can get into that, a very, very important question needs to be answered. Namely, is Jesus married? What do you think? Is Jesus married? The answer is no. Not yet. But he is betrothed. Don't think Da Vinci Code here, all right? There wasn't some secret wedding between him and Mary Magdalene. Think Joseph and Mary. Jesus is not married yet, but he will be soon. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. So who is he betrothed to? Well, the best place to answer that question is Ephesians chapter 5. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that means to cleanse her or make her pure, having, uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For uh, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so I get that there are some people who would struggle with this text. I, I don't think you ought to. I think God has given us this text for our good, for our joy. So I don't think you ought to struggle with it, but I can see how some people might. But here's the unmistakable thing that we need to walk away with. 
The Apostle Paul has just made it very, very clear here that, that the roles that he prescribes in a Christian home have nothing to do with cultural mores or practical efficiency, and they have every single thing to do with modeling the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. That's what he's getting at. In fact, Paul's argument here is that the whole reason that God created human marriage was for the purpose of being a shadow of this far more eternal relationship. That's the point. That's the reason God designed it this way. In order to teach us about a bigger, more eternal reality. To teach us about Jesus and his relationship with the church. That God designed marriage for this purpose. And so Jesus is betrothed to the church. Okay, so what does betrothal look like? And is it the same thing as what we think of as engagement? Not really. When we in America think about a wedding, what do we normally think about? Big ceremony, right? I mean, that's what my mind goes to. Probably yours as well, right? Giant ceremony. Sometimes... Overly expensive ceremony, right? A couple has spent a ton of time together by this point, but nothing is official yet. It's not until they say their I do's and their pronounced husband and wife that the deal's done, right? And things could really fall apart all the way up until that moment. In fact, we almost kind of expect it to, right? Like, isn't a big chunk of the chick flick genre kind of built along that whole storyline where they're at the altar moment and things fall apart and then she goes off with the other guy? Those of you who have seen these movies, you know. <laughs> like the biggest offender, the worst offender I know of is the movie While You Were Sleeping. <laughs> Sandra Bullock and Bill Pullman. Look at them, so happy in love. <laughs> While You Were Sleeping, the girl, Sandra, pretends to, be in a, uh, pretends to be engaged to a man who is in a coma. Because that makes sense in a romantic comedy. <laughs> The guy that she pretends to be engaged with, she lies to the family, lies to doctors, nurses, all that kind of stuff. Legal, by the way. All right. But she lies to these people, pretends to be engaged to this man who's in a coma. As this guy's in a coma, she instead falls in love with his brother. Because that also makes sense in a romantic comedy. But don't worry, because the movie ends with the guy waking up from the coma, deciding, you know what, I'm going to marry this girl because, well, I'm engaged, right? even though he doesn't remember her, right? decides he's going to get married. They have this wedding in the hospital, and as they're proceeding in the process of getting married, of the wedding happening, she finally fesses up and says, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And the wedding's off. But don't worry, because it's a romantic comedy. Because a couple of days later, old Bill Pullman over there, with his feathered hair, Goes to where she works, drops an engagement ring, and the two live happily ever after. Isn't it sweet? <laughs> Pay no mind to the fact that if this ever actually happened in real life, folks would be getting sued all over the place. Just good, clean fun, right? Now granted, this is a, an incredibly hyperbolized example. I, I get that, but we live in a culture where that story even has a chance of making sense because we build up the singular event of a wedding ceremony to be the end-all, be-all of the, the culmination of a relationship, right? 
We build that singular moment of the I do's and the pronouncement to be the act of getting married. And so we've created this culture for ourselves where, where an engagement can fall apart. And sometimes probably ought to fall apart before the deal is done. Right? And so whether you want to call it right or wrong is a conversation for another day. But what cannot be argued is that this is a culture that doesn't make any sense in most of the world still today. And doesn't make any sense at all in first century Israel. Not one bit. To the culture living in the time in the region of the New Testament, a wedding was stretched out to be much longer than a singular event. Significantly longer than a singular event. Sometimes for more than a year. All still official though. It also had four distinct stages. Let me walk you through them real quick. The ketubah, that's a fun word, the preparation, the invitation, and the consummation. Hey guys, guess why I want to spend the next four weeks talking about this stuff? You can do the math, right? The ketubah, the preparation, the invitation, and the consummation. And to a first century Jewish mind, this thing is, a, is official from beginning to end. Beginning to end. The bride and the bridegroom are officially linked together, but the final piece doesn't come in until the consummation. And if you're wondering, this is why Joseph and Mary traveled together to Bethlehem to be registered for the census. See, in the eyes of Rome, Joseph and Mary are married. But in the eyes of their friends and their family, the culture that they live in, not yet. So they have to travel together for the official Roman census. But they're not married yet. So they're not together, quote unquote, for the sake of the little ears in the room. They're, they're together, but they're not together. Okay, So that's, that, that's, that's great. The, okay. So what's the first step? The ketubah. Everybody say the ketubah. <laughs> it's the weirdest Hebrew word you're ever going to hear. Now, so some of you are probably thinking, Kabbalah, not the same thing. Les Duncan asked me that the other day. Kabbalah is that weird Jewish mysticism stuff. Ketubah means the writing. The writing. So, what's a ketubah? Well, it would begin with the bridegroom leaving his father's house and going to the home of the one he was pursuing. He would sit down with his potential bride and her family and write a covenant, terms of agreement for both parties, along with an agreed-upon bridal price to be paid by him. If the bride and her family agreed to the terms, the covenant would be sealed with the act of drinking a cup of wine, and the bridegroom would then go on to secure the payment for the right to marry his bride. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what a Jewish proposal in the first century looked like. The young man would leave his father's house, and go to the one he was pursuing. They would lay out all the terms. And if, and if the bride and her family agreed to those terms, it became official and they would seal that official act with the drinking of a cup of wine. Hey guys, you remember that whole Emmanuel thing we talk about every Christmas? You know the one where the eternal son steps down from his throne and comes to the one he was pursuing. Yeah, I remember that. Well, let's talk about the other parts. Was the proposal accepted? Yes, it was. Let's look at Matthew 26 together. Matthew 26. It's 
this is what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Supper. All right? The night that Jesus was arrested, he gathered his disciples, his followers, or at least the closer inner circle of them, into the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal with them. And in verse 26 of Matthew 26, it says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of, uh, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, do not mishear me here. This text is primarily about celebrating and redefining the Passover. All right? So I'm not taking that away from here. But it should be noted that Jesus uses marriage-specific language when he doesn't have to. So what's the marriage-specific language? Verse 27. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant. See, when it came time to seal the betrothal agreement, the father would pour a cup of wine, He would hand it to the young man. The young man would pass that cup of wine to his potential bride. And if she took that cup of wine and drank it, she'd be saying yes. And if she refused the cup of wine, she'd be saying no. Jesus doesn't have to use these specific words to celebrate the Passover together, but he does use these specific words. Does anybody in here think that Jesus is accidentally coincidental? He uses them on purpose. Okay, what about the bride price? That's a part of the deal, right? He he was supposed to pay a bride price. So what's the bride price that Jesus pays? I'm so glad you asked. What's the answer? His life. And we can see that already from the two texts that we've already looked at, right? Because he doesn't simply offer a cup of the covenant. What does he say? Jesus offers the blood of his covenant. When we looked at Ephesians 5 a second ago, when we were talking about uh, verse 25, it tells us that husbands are to, quote, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's the bride price that Jesus pays? Himself, his life. The price that Jesus pays for the right to marry his beloved is steep. It's steep. But we we have more than just two texts that we can look at. We could also look at some other places in the Bible. So turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Or I can just have them up on the screen. We'll move fast. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he, what's that word? That's deeper than just offered something, huh? Or we could read Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a what? Propitiation. Propitiation is a a very important word in the Bible. It's like a payment, but much, much, much bigger than just the normal word payment. It's like a ransom price. He purchased something as an act of grace. Or we could look at Revelation 5.9 and they sang a new song saying, Worthy you to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain and by your blood, what's that word? You ransomed. That's a big word. People for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Or we could take the time to talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians 7, 23, Ephesians 1, 7, 1 John 2, 2, Revelation 1, 5. Or, just maybe, we can go ahead and see that this is a major theme of the Bible. Right? 
This is what God is doing. See, when we, when we ask the question, why did Jesus die? It's actually important to have the right answer. You ever thought through that? Like the right answer in its fullness. See, the ambiguous sounding Jesus died for me or even he died for us is actually not good enough. It sounds nice, but it's not good enough. It's not the right answer. And even though it's much closer to being correct, he died for my sin, quote unquote, it's actually still a little too short too. For those of you who are more theologically inclined, penal substitution is a massive part of the gospel message, but it's not the only part of the gospel message. There's more on the table than just Jesus paid the debt of our sin. It's not less than that, but it's also more than that. See, the Bible teaches that the death of Jesus on the cross actually purchased something. He actually purchased something. Yes, Jesus died to pay for our sin, but he also died to purchase a people for himself. Jesus made satisfaction for our sin by absorbing the wrath of God on the cross, but he also purchased us as his own. Or we could say it the same way that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. For you are not your own, you were bought with a... Yeah. Jesus left his father's house and came to the home of the one he wanted for his own. He took the initiative to make a ketubah, a covenant, to settle the price to be paid for the right to marry his bride. And then Jesus willingly and joyfully paid that price in full and has earned the right to claim what is his. Okay, so what's next? Well, we'll talk about this in detail over the next few weeks, but at this point in, a Jewish, in the Jewish marriage process, the bridegroom will return to his father's house to go work on some stuff for a little while. And the bride will go off in her own direction to get prepared. And then after a little while, the bride will come an amazing shout of glory to come collect what belongs to him. But that's for next time. Happily ever after. Like I said, this is a chick flick. But that raises a very significant question this morning that needs to be answered. Namely, are you a part of the bride? Are you a part of the bride? See, before we get off on all these other really good things that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, we need to lock down the reality this morning that you have been personally invited into this story. Personally invited. The proposal from Jesus is not just symbolic. It's not just a gesture. It's an actual invitation. So the call goes out to everyone this morning. Are you a part of the bride? The Bible says, though, that many are called, but few are chosen. Are you a part of the bride? Does, do you see your sin and your separation from God, and have you placed your hope and trust in Jesus alone? Today's a good day to do something about that, because this is the story of God, and the story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest chick flick we learn the world will ever know. It's in the process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world, he's redeeming and saving for one solitary reason, that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? 
Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to, to press into God today. And you do that best by pressing in through his word. Maybe start with the Gospels. We believe the Bible has been given to us by God for the purpose of knowing him. But listen, based on what we're talking about for the next few weeks, I guarantee you there's stuff under the surface there that you don't know about. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. He's given them to us so that we may know him and know him deeply. So start there. But we can take another step into this. Maybe you've always seen Jesus as an indifferent deity. Only ever dealing with the cold demands of the law. Listen, he doesn't do less than that. He is handling the demands of the law. Decisively and eternally. But he's also more than that because he's also the good lover who pursues his beloved. Like the best themes that get us worked up in the chick flick or the whatever movie, the things that kind of stir our hearts, guess where those stories are birthed out of? He's the good lover, the pursuer of our souls. He's determined to rescue the one he wants. He will not be denied. Nothing can stand in his way. So today, church, today is a good day to press in. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting the one that the story is all about, Jesus. You meet Jesus. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting him and him alone for salvation. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Listen, if you want some help walking through what that next step looks like, I'm going to be down here. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who pursues your beloved. Philippians tells us that you emptied yourself of the, the, the honor and the glory and the, the comfort of a heavenly throne. And you said you came to the home of your beloved. That you were obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For the sake of ransoming us for yourself. God, you are the good husband. And you will call your bride to yourself one day. God, my hope and my prayer is that we are all a part of that bride. So if there's anyone here who doesn't know you yet, would you change that this morning? Would you make yourself known to them? As we sing, as we pray as we do all these things in our response time, God, would you you show us your face? Thank you for being a God who came. Thank you for being a God who does what is necessary to, to rescue, to bring to crescendo your great story. So as we respond, do big things. 
change us forever. In your name we pray.